Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The Epic of Gilgamesh, the Genesis creation story, the Bhagavad Gita. These are just a few examples of the myths and stories that explain human existence. Individuals like Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell have argued that while these myths sprang from different cultures, they all share similar archetypes and meta narratives. My guest today has picked up where Jung and Campbell left off and is making an impassioned case that the way to save ourselves from increasing political polarization is to become acquainted with these ancient human myths once again. His name is Jordan B. Peterson, and he's a clinical psychologist at the University of Toronto. But unlike many clinical psychologists, Dr. Peterson has spent his career studying human myths and how they can provide meaning in a world of tragedy and frustration. Today on the show, Jordan provides an introduction to the world of myths and archetypes. We begin our discussion talking about some of the big archetypes we see over and over again in stories across cultures and time and why they show up everywhere. We then discuss feminine and masculine archetypes in detail, how the hero archetype is the link between the two and the examples and examples of the hero archetype from around the world. Jordan argues also that disregarding or ignoring these ancient myths led to the rise of extreme political ideologies in the early 20th century, as well as the resurgence today. We enter a conversation discussing how these myths can help young men journey into noble manhood and talk about some of the books Jordan recommends young men read to learn more about them. While the subject may seem heady, this is an accessible and fun conversation filled with insights about how to live a flourishing, meaningful life. You'll definitely be thinking about these ideas after the show is over. So when the show is over and when you start thinking about those ideas, Make sure to check out our show notes at awim.is slash Peterson. Jordan B. Peterson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So I've had, uh, you've been one of my most requested guests from my podcast listeners. And I've been following your work online, watching your, your YouTube videos, your lectures, listening to your podcast. Because it's uh, you, you focus on an area that has fascinated me for a long time, Jungian psychology, archetypes, things like that. But I'm curious, like, what would you describe what you do? Because um, you're a clinical psychologist, but your work lately seems much more philosophical, existential. So if someone were to ask you, you know, at a cocktail party, what exactly do you do? What would you tell them? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'd usually start with my professional identity. You know, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. I'd tell them I was a clinical psychologist. But what am I trying to do, I suppose? Um, For a very long time, I've been trying to understand how it is that people might make sense out of their lives and make meaning and make their lives meaningful in the face of the trouble that life brings. That's central to the clinical practice, of course, because when you see people clinically, they're often suffering from serious problems in their lives less frequently than you might think a consequence of mental illness and more often a consequence of the fact that things can go very badly in people's lives and we need a positive meaning to offset that and so I'm very curious in about what positive meanings might exist to offset that and I don't believe that ideologies are the correct answer. Right, yeah. Um, And and so what you've done, we'll get into this bit about ideology not being the correct answer and why that is, you have been exploring myths that have been around in human history for tens of thousands of years, some of them, and trying to find out how we can extract meaning from them, what even us modern individuals can learn from these myths. So did this interest in myths and archetypes and things, did that start before your work as a clinical psychologist or did you work as a clinical psychologist seeing the problems that people have sort of existential? No, it really started, it started 
about the same time that I started doing my clinical training, although perhaps even a bit earlier when I was doing my undergraduate degree in psychology, I started to read while the great clinicians, you know, Freud and Rogers and Carl Jung and Abraham Maslow and people like that, the great 20th century clinicians. And I started to study Carl Jung and his ideas of archetypes. And the the notion that people inhabit stories was very striking to me and that these stories have a structure and that there are great stories that elucidate that structure profoundly and clearly. And I found that very useful from a personal perspective, but also with regards to my clinical work. And then also theoretically, especially as I started to understand more about how the brain worked, I suppose. So it's a it's a long-standing interest. It's, it's tangled up too with the issue of ideology because when I was doing my clinical training to begin with, I was also simultaneously working on a book I published in 1999 called Maps of Meaning. And Maps of Meaning was in part to an attempt to understand the relationship between people's belief systems and their capacity to regulate their own emotion, both positive and negative emotion, because those are separate circuits. And so all of those things were tangled together in my initial investigations into, let's say, narrative and then deeper into the the substructure of narrative. Right. Well, I think for people to understand what you do and kind of set the foundation for the rest of our conversation here, as you said, your work really has grown off of the work of Carl Jung. And you mentioned that Carl Jung had this idea of sort of these narratives, the meta-narratives that we all live out in some way and that they've been distilled into these stories that you see in antiquity, the Sumerians, the Old Testament, even in India and, and, and other cultures. Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. So for those who aren't familiar with Jung, I mean, I guess his big idea is that these narratives exist, but how did these narratives come into place? What was his idea? Like, Why is it that all these cultures share these same stories no matter where you go and no matter what time you're in? Well, Jung wasn't particularly clear about how they emerged. He made various attempts in his life to come up with a causal explanation. I mean, he attributed them to the existence of something he called the collective unconscious, which would be the deep structure of the mind that is shared by every human being. And you could think about that most usefully, I suppose, from a biological perspective, although it's somewhat confusing because it often seems as if what Jung was doing was hypothesizing the existence of inherited memory content. And he never is really clear, all that clear about how he formulates the concept of the collective unconscious, except to say that because we're all human and because we, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I suppose, because we're all human and because we all share the same biological platform, I mean, a platform that we share even with animals to a large degree, we tend to interpret the world in very similar ways. And those interpretations are often expressed in in stories. Stories are descriptions about how, how human beings act. And our fundamental problem in the world is how to act. And so... One of the most fundamental stories, for example, is the hero archetype. And the hero in the archetypal story essentially goes out and confronts chaos. And that's the the indeterminate world. That's the world, the confusing, uncertain world, full of unexpected occurrences, dangerous, threatening, and also promising. The hero is the person who voluntarily confronts that and makes sense out of it and establishes habitable territory, let's say, a safe domain, a safe and productive domain. And in that pursuit, especially if it's done voluntarily, it's possible to find deep meaning. And that meaning is an expression of the instinct that guides us out into the unknown so that we can well, conquer it, let's say, and and prevail. And I suppose part of that, there's an existential element to that, which is that in order for people to find the meaning in life that sustains them through the tragedies of life, they have to undertake a courageous and noble adventure, let's say, because there's nothing that gives life enough significance to justify it in the absence of that sort of adventure. And you might say, well, where did these stories come from? And I would say the answer to that is that because human beings are self-conscious, and that's something that really distinguishes us quite substantively from other animals, we've been watching ourselves behave for a very long time and trying to understand what it is that we're doing, both when we're successful and when we're unsuccessful. We've created stories, extracted stories or derived stories over thousands or tens of thousands of years that describe both the fundamental pattern of success and the fundamental pattern of failure. And those stories are encoded in in great stories, in myths, essentially. You know, I mean, so the, the successful person is the successful hero who establishes order in the midst of chaos and sets up a domain in which he and his family, let's say, and the community can survive and thrive. And the 
unsuccessful is someone who fails at that and then perhaps even worse becomes embittered by that failure and turns against life and begins to act in a malevolent manner and uh, in a destructive manner. So the fundamental narrative landscape in some sense is good versus evil in the world of chaos versus order. It's something like that. And you see that expressed very frequently, for example, in video game structures. So because games and stories share a lot in common. So as you were talking, it sounds like um, these narratives or these meta narratives or these archetypes, there's sort of a Darwinian thing going on. You talk a lot about survival and failure and the stories that are useful for people to thrive in this world. Those are the ones that survived and we still have them today because they are still Yeah, well, that's, I would say that that's part of what I've added to the Jungian corpus of thinking is I've tried to place the idea of the functional myth in a Darwinian context and take seriously the idea that our fundamental religious narratives, which are associated with these great myths, are actually evolved structures. And they've evolved at multiple levels. First of all, they're expressions of our physiological being because we act in certain ways in the world as a consequence of the manner in which we're constituted physiologically. And our our physiological constitution is obviously a product of Darwinian processes, like insofar as you buy the 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 ev- by evolutionary theory as a generative, you know, as an account of the mechanism that generated us. So our physiology evolved, our behaviors evolved, then our accounts of those behaviors, both successful and unsuccessful, evolved. And as those accounts evolved and we shared them, we also tra- changed the landscape in which we were being selected. And so all of these things tangle together, but they tangle together in a way that that embeds these great stories deeply within us, I would say, both physiologically and psychologically. But yeah, I think about it as a Darwin, deeply Darwinian process. Now, to me, the idea that the that the world of experience, which is the world in which you act, let's say, not the world that you construe objectively, but the world in which you act, that's best considered as a battle between good and evil in a domain of chaos and order. And the individual is best conceived as the person who mediates between chaos and order. And we're doing that all the time. Whenever you're confused, you can you confront chaos. And and that's that's a it's a different way of looking at the world to think of chaos as as a constituent element of experience, but it's very, very helpful because it helps orient you when you're in a state of confusion and when you're in a state of crisis, which is very common for people. And there's guidelines for that, you know. I mean, the great ethical guidelines are, well, they, they you might say that you're entreated to act nobly, act with humility, act honestly, pursue beauty, pursue your vision, a vision of the future that would make things better for you and for the people around you. I mean, it's all a call, I would say, in some sense, to noble action. And people are somewhat cynical about such things today because they think of that as they try to reduce it to a set of rules and and also think about it as arbitrary. But it's not arbitrary at all. It's the attempt of, of humanity to determine the appropriate path through the crises of life. And everyone needs to know that path because everyone's life is rife with crises. So it's very, very practical. It's not abstract at all. I mean, part of the reason there's an injunction to the truth, for example, is that if you're in a circumstance of extreme uncertainty, your best weapon, let's say, or your best tool or your best defense is the truth because it keeps things simpler. And that's often extremely necessary. And it keeps your eyes clear because if you exist in a deceitful relationship with the world, then you start to perceive it improperly and and you warp your reputation and you damage your capacity to think because you've, you're not existing in an authentic relationship with yourself in the world. How could that possibly work? Assuming that there's such a thing as reality, if you have a false relationship with it, how can you do anything but fail? Now, you know, people think that they can use deceit, for example, and warp the structure of reality because now and then they get away with it in the short term and that enables them to generate the presupposition that that's an effective strategy. But but it's not, because things come back to bite you, always. So partly what I've been doing is trying to extract out from these great stories and, and from the biological context in which they're embedded, like very, very concrete, what would you say, suggestions about how people should conduct themselves in the world. And and to try to emphasize how practical this is. You know, I, I just finished a, a series of lectures on the on the biblical stories in Genesis. And for example, I spent a fair bit of time talking about the flood, which is a very common mythological story, the idea that there is a flood and that the creator of of everything determines that from time to time to wipe things out. And 
that that's appropriately read as a description of the conditions of existence. You know, no matter who you are, as you walk through life, you're going to be confronted by catastrophes that have the possibility of washing you away. And you need to know how to conduct yourself in order to prevail when that happens. I mean, that can happen to you personally. You can get very ill or it can happen to you in your family when a family member breaks down or, or dies or, or has something terrible happen to them or there's an economic catastrophe in your family. And it can happen socially. And it, not only can it happen, it will happen. You know, and, and the injunction to Noah, for example, or the description of Noah, because he's the person that builds an ark, is that he walks with God. And that means that he has his moral house in order and that his generations are perfect, which means that he has his family in order. And what that means is that when the crisis comes, he's prepared to deal with it and, and can prevail. And that's what people need to know. They need to know how to do that because the crisis is always coming. That's why the apocalypse, the idea of the apocalypse and the end of the world is also archetypal. It's because our worlds come to an end c continually in small ways and sometimes in large ways. And so, in some sense, it's necessary to be constantly preparing for the apocalypse because you're going to go through experiences in your life that will throw you for a loop and force you to either radically change or to, or to fail and perhaps to die. So it's, it's very serious business. Right. So you, these, these, um, these apocalypses, they could be like losing a job or your wife dies or a child dies. Right. Yeah, well, the, yes, all three of those will, or, or you have a terrible divorce, or, yeah, it's those experiences in life where the fundamental constants that keep you oriented shift, and then you fall into the unknown, that's the underworld of mythology, you fall into the unknown and into the underworld, and part of that underworld can be hell. Now, hell is the part of the underworld that emerges when you're embittered by your failure and you turn towards the desire to destroy, and everyone who thinks about this can can appreciate that because most people, at least if they reflect on their own experience, can understand full well the negative psychological consequences of, of falling flat on your face. It's, it's not only that you fail, it's that you become bitter and turn against the world. That's a trip to hell for all intents and purposes. Right. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's uh, for sure. Yeah. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Exactly. You know, and we, the, the fundamentalist types tend to read those things very concretely and to only project that out into an afterlife, say, or, or a purely spiritual world. And I'm not making any claims about, at the moment, about metaphysics or, or post-life existence. I'm saying that these descriptions pertain to psychological conditions that are always around us right here and now, and that the mythological landscape is the landscape of human experience. It's not the objective world. And the landscape of human experience and the objective world aren't the same thing. There's no pain. A pain is not an objective thing. It's part of the subjective world of human experience, but its, but it's, it's reality is, is undeniable from an experiential perspective. So our, our materialist outlook doesn't do a good job of orienting us in the world because it doesn't tell us how to behave, and it can't. You know, it's the famous conundrum put forward by David Hume that just which is you can't derive an ought from an is, which means no matter how much factual information you extract from the world, you're not going to derive from that an unerring guide to how you should act. And so you might say, well, there's an endless number of answers to the question how you should act, but that's not helpful because all that does is disorient you. Yeah, that, well, that's what, yeah, you're right. A lot of what we're trying to do, and I feel like in our modern world, and in the world of psychology, particularly, the field of psychology, you have these individuals who are trying to show what, the brain is like, and then from that deriving oughts, right? Well, the brain does this, so therefore you should do this so you live a happy, flourishing life. And you're saying that that might not be that useful. Well, I'm saying generally that, it, that it's a technical problem in some sense that there's an endless number of pathways that can be derived from any set of empirical facts. And so, I mean, here's an example. I mean, should you spend more money on discovering a cure for cancer or on educating university students. Well, in some sense, the question is so complex that no matter how many facts you gather, you're never going to get an answer to it because the answer depends on how many variables you're willing to put in the equation. And there's an endless number of them. And most decisions in life are like that. And so you, you can't rely on facts to guide you. It doesn't mean you should ignore them. They set parameters. But in my estimation, there's a domain 
of factual knowledge, and that would be the domain of the objective world that's studied empirically, and there's a domain of moral knowledge, and that's knowledge about how to conduct yourself in the world, and that's the world of value, and it's in that world, that world includes emotions and motivations and, and the subjective states that characterize our existence. And in that world, those things are the fundamental realities. Like from the perspective of the mythological, I would say, there's nothing more real than pain. You know, in from the material perspective, there's nothing more real than matter. But pain is what matters most. And even the word matter is an interesting word because you have, on the one hand, the matter that everything is made of. And then on the other hand, you have what matters and how it matters. And that's the world of what's important. And that's different, but it's still matter. And the, the material or the the mytholo in the mythological world, what matters is what's important. The world is made out of what matters, not out of matter. It requires a very different orientation. Right. It, it, it requires an orientation that also starts with the assumption that meaning is primary rather than matter. So this, you, this is where phenomenology ahead. comes in, right? Right. That's what phenomenology is the study of, what matters. Yes, exactly. And, and I would say the viewpoint that I've been developing, although it has parallels with the work of Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, although I came across Heidegger well into the development of these ideas, but the parallelism is quite striking. You know, Heidegger was also interested in trying to lay out a map for the world of human experience. So, you've mentioned some of these big archetypes that we see throughout history. There's chaos, and then there's order. And then in between, you mentioned there's the hero who... Or the adversary, yeah, yeah, the, yeah the individual, anyways, and yeah. So the chaotic domain has two elements. There's a positive element and a negative element. That's usually symbolized using female iconography and representations, and it's because new things come out of the unknown. And so there's an an, an appropriate analogous. There's an appropriate analogy at work there. It's the defining characteristic of the feminine is that the feminine is that out of which new forms arise. And the unknown is like that. And that's why we have Mother Nature, for example. You know, Mother Nature is what you go to investigate to discover new things. And it's Mother Nature because Mother Nature gives rise to new things. And there's a terrible element of chaos and the unknown. And that's the part of the unknown that will kill you or hurt you. And there's a benevolent element. And that's the part that will provide you with new information and new life if you're fortunate enough to well, if you're fortunate enough to begin with, but it, also if you're brave and honest and courageous enough to confront the unknown properly. And then in the orderly domain, there's two elements too, and that's usually masculine. That's the great father, the tyrant and the wise king. And the tyrant is that part of the social world, the patriarchy, let's say, that oppresses and crushes you while it simultaneously develops and protects you. And you're, you're, you're subject to both of those elements continually. And part of your existential problem is how do you transform the tyranny into benevolent protection? and Or how do you transform the terror of nature into the benevolence of the, of the natural world and the unknown? And, and that's really the goal of the hero, is to do that. Is to figure out how to balance those constituent elements of experience. And is this, this hero archetype, is it also masculine? It's masculine, but that doesn't make it male. Right. Like it, because it's... it's it's a symbolic language, you know, and, and it's hard to say precisely why it's masculine. I would say it's likely masculine because the feminine archetype is associated with birth and it's such a dominant, you know, birth and, and, and new life is, and destruction for that matter is, is such a dominant element of that archetypal representation that something had to be formulated as its opposite. It seems like the hero is kind of a way, it's also a sort of a masculine mother, right? Because like you go into the chaos to birth something new oftentimes. I don't know. Yeah, well, it, it's you, it, you I, I would say that's not, it's not feminine because when you go in, you go in as an active agent, as a fertilizing agent, let's say. Because let's say that when you encounter something unknown, it's it's the a priori structures that you bring to bear on that, that give rise to the new thing. So, I mean, if you look at, look at the movie Sleeping Beauty, for example, so the, the female, the feminine is unconscious in that movie, that's Sleeping Beauty, and she's unconscious because she couldn't tolerate the trauma of puberty and sexual development, essentially. And that's, the reason for that is because her parents overprotected her, right? If you remember at the beginning of Sleeping Beauty, 
The king and queen, who've been waiting a long time for their daughter, decide not to invite Maleficent to the christening. And Maleficent is the evil queen, right? She's the negative element of nature and the world. And if you don't invite the negative, if you don't allow the negative element of life in the world into your child's environment, then you overprotect them and make them weak. And then when they grow up and, and face the inevitable confrontations of adolescence and adulthood, they deeply desire to remain unconscious or to become unconscious again. That can manifest itself as in suicidal ideation, for example. So Sleeping Beauty falls unconscious when she's pricked by when blood emerges, when she's pricked, and it's just after she, you know, she falls in love naively with the prince, and then and then that collapses, and she can't tolerate the catastrophe of her existence. So she falls unconscious, and something has to rescue her. And it's the hero, it's the prince. Now, you can read that as an external prince, because to some degree, in a woman's life, the, the adult feminine in her is awakened by the man that she chooses. So you can read it as a love story, but you can also read it as a story of individual development, because what the woman is going to use to call herself out of unconsciousness is her own masculine propensity to, to develop her consciousness and to move forthrightly out into the world. I mean, these archetypal stories can generally be read at multiple levels of analysis simultaneously. They apply across multiple domains. So... So that's why you have to, to uh, you mentioned, I think, in Maps of Meaning, you have to take a Jungian circumambulation around these stories, right? It's kind of walk around and around and around them because you can get different perspectives depending on where you're at. Yes, well, and you have to do that in the world as well. You want to push yourself out against the world in as many ways as you can because that forces you to develop, you know, and, and there's, 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 that's partly because as you push yourself out against the world and learn new things, you become more and more informed Right by the information that you're that you're um, generating in your active encounter with the world, but also we know that when you put yourself in new situations, new genes turn on in your nervous system and they code for new proteins, and so you exist a lot in potential. And the way that and you need to actualize that potential into in order to become all that you need to be in order to prevail in the world. And the way that you do that is by pushing yourself out against new unknown things and forcing your own transformation in the face of those challenges. And the idea is that if you do that, let's say religiously, then you can turn yourself into a character that has enough power and strength to prevail in the tragic conditions of life without becoming embittered and, and cruel and malevolent. And I mean, it, again, to me, this the longer I study this, I suppose the more self-evident it seems to me, life is very difficult. It will challenge you to, to your core. You need to be able to withstand that challenge or, or you'll, you'll warp and, and deteriorate. How do you develop yourself to withstand that challenge? You take on responsibilities and challenges voluntarily and strengthen yourself. How else could you possibly do it? I mean, you could hide, but there's no hiding. You can't hide from illness and death. You can't hide from loneliness or pain. It's not possible. And if you retreat, then the things that chase you just grow larger. So you have to put yourself together. And you do that by seeing what's right in front of you, regardless of whether or not you like it. And encouraging yourself to master what you see voluntarily and to extend yourself and to stretch yourself out constantly. And you do that with your eyes open, and you do that with your, with your speech and thinking carefully monitored and regulated so that you don't corrupt yourself with unnecessary ignorance and delusion, because that will just hurt you when the crisis comes. So this is why these, and then it goes back to why these meta-narratives, these archetypes exist, they instruct us on how to do just that, right? How to face chaos, how to face tragedy, um, because they provide examples. They set the pat yeah, pattern. Yeah, they set right. the pattern. Yeah, and, and the, the issue is how do you manifest the pattern in, in your own life? That's the crucial issue, is how do you realize the archetype in your own life? And you do that in part by accepting the struggles of your being, or perhaps even welcoming them, and subjugating yourself to them, and opening yourself up to the possibility of radical transformation in, 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 in the face of your errors and faults. 
That's humility, I suppose. You're not all that you could be. Well, you might say, well, why does that matter? Well, that's, it's easy to answer that. If you're not all that you can be, you will suffer more than you have to, and so will the people around you. And you might say, well, I don't care about that. It's like, well, that's unlikely because virtually everyone cares about their own pain. But even if you have got to the point where you don't care about that, that's certainly nothing to be happy about or proud of. It's, it's a catastrophe. You have to become who you are, right? According to Pindar, quoted by Nietzsche. Well, that's associated with Jung's idea of the self, is that, and that and one of the ways to understand that, because it seems like a very strange pronouncement, is that you are what you are, but you're also what you could be, which is a strange thing, right? Because and that's no more than to say that you are characterized by an indefinite amount of potential. So you are what you are, and you are the potential that, that you are. That's a very paradoxical statement because it's not obvious how you can be something that's potential. Because potential isn't being, it's, it's the possibility of becoming. But be that as it may, we're stuck with it. It's a paradox, but we're stuck with it. The, the goal of authenticity from an existential perspective is to pursue that which you could be so that you can flesh yourself out, so you can burn off what about you is dead and outdated, and so that you can allow what could be to come to life. And the, the deep archetypal idea is that to the degree that you do that, you redeem yourself and you redeem the world around you. And I believe that that's, again, I, I don't think that that's metaphysics. It seems to be the, the most practical of truths. And the archetype, for example, the hero archetype is, you could say what it is, is the, it's that which you find admirable, that which you find spontaneously admirable, is the pathway to the, to the archetype. And you see, so people might tell stories about interesting and admirable people. And the reason they tell them is because they admire those people. And when they talk about them, other people listen. And so then you could imagine, well, if you distilled what people find most interesting and admirable about others, what you would end up at the end of the process of distillation would be something like an archetypal story. It would be something like the story of Buddha, or it would be something like the story of Christ. Yeah, the other one that came to mind was the, the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita. I'm reading that lately, and that's sort of the main, the main message of that. It's like, uh -huh. you can only be who you are, and you're, to live, to have, uh, was it Dharma, you have to become who you are. What have you learned about that concretely? What that that's changed the way that you're acting? Oh man, changed the way that I'm, I don't know. It's it's definitely had an impact on me. I don't know if it's gotten to the point where it's changed the way I make. Maybe not being afraid of you know following that inner voice, right? I mean, kind of what Thoreau or Emerson would say, because um, they were they were kind of Jungian in a way, um, be proto Jungians. Well, I. I guess it's, you can be afraid, but you can't stop. Yeah. That's the thing, because the fear is justifiable. But it's not, that doesn't make it a sufficient reason to retreat and stop. There's no retreat in life. That's the thing. There might be periods that where you can pull back and rest. But because we're surrounded by the unknown and the unexpected, and because we're characterized by the consequences of our ultimate ignorance, and because we're finite, there's no stepping back. You either move forward voluntarily or degenerate. Those are your options, and the degeneration process is what we said already. It's in its worst aspects. It's a voyage to hell. And you, you see the consequences of that because people who have become particularly embittered by life also become, often become very cruel and do everything they can to make whatever could be good, bad, merely for the sake of spite and revenge. To me, that's in large part the story of the 20th century. I mean, we had these great ideological battles in the 20th century and terrible catastrophes as a, as a consequence of the form, formation of a variety of different ideological stances. But though even those ideologies were turned into something 
immensely destructive by the by the malevolent actions and the and the and the cowardly inactions of the people who held the ideologies. Well, let's tie how your your study of um, ideology goes into this. So, it, does does ideology rise up when people either ignore or reject these meta narratives yes. we've been talking about? Yes, because okay. the ideologies are parasites on the underlying religious structure. They tell you part of the archetypal story, but not all of it. They just tell you enough of it to to grip you if you're not situated properly in the metaphysical landscape. It's, it's, it's like a, an, a cult indoctrination. And they, they tell enough of the story so that the telling has religious power, it has religious, religiously compelling power, and that pulls people into the ideology. But what also pulls them into it is the desire for them to escape their own individual responsibility, because if you adopt an ideology, then you're part of a group, and the group becomes responsible, not you. And that can be a great relief, because, well, who wants the responsibility? No, I mean, what I've learned from reading people like Carl Jung and Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Viktor Frankl, and people who wrote deeply about what happened in the 20th century, it was that you are deeply responsible for the course of your life, but also to an indeterminate degree for the course of the lives of the people around you, your family and then your broader community. That's on you, man. And that means that when you make a moral error, the consequences of that error ripple out beyond you and add to the pathology, well, of your family and your friends, but also of your society. And it it's something that people want to shrink away from because it's bad enough to be responsible on your own for your mistakes, but to also understand that your moral insufficiency corrupts the world. Well, that's a hell of a thing to to come to terms with. Right. And so, uh, I mean, this is exactly what Nietzsche predicted um, would happen in the 20th century with the death of God. A lot of people misunderstand Nietzsche where he kind of celebrates the death of God. He's actually saying, no, this is actually really terrible. Yeah, I know. He wasn't celebrating it. That's right. for this sure. Is, this is terrible because here's what's going to happen. We'll never find enough water to wash away the blood. Right. And so, as you said, that these ideologies, what they often do is they'll, they tell half of the, the story of the archetype. So, I'm guessing with, you know, uh, in, in the 20th century, Nazism really focused on that father archetype, but on the negative part, like extreme order. And then like, maybe communism was, what's, what, was, what was that possibly, the ideology? Well, with, with the Nazis, the, the, the basic archetype was the positive father, right? But ignoring the tyrant. So, right, because you, the social world you can characterize as wise king and tyrant, and the Nazi call was, well, we'll be, join us and the wise father will rule forever. Well, but there was no discussion of the tyrant, and there was no discussion of the abdication of <clears throat> individual responsibility. And so, everything that was ignored played itself out, because it wasn't, you can't ignore the tyrant. And you can't give yourself over to the great father without sacrificing your soul. And if you sacrifice your soul, then the probability that you'll become corrupt is 100%. And once you're corrupt, you'll start to do terrible things. And then with communism, because like that, you, you really focus a lot on that with, you know, Solzhenitsyn talks a lot about that and you really refer to his work. I mean, what was going on there archetypically? Well, the original diagnosis with the, with the, with the communist revolutionaries is that what they were confronting was only the tyrannical father. You know, and that if you can just do away with the tyrannical father, then everything, then people will all of a sudden be living in, you know, a harmonious utopia. It's to blame everything on the tyrannical father, which is exactly what's happening. That's exactly the message that the radical left is pushing forward in our society, is that all the corruption of the world is a consequence of the tyrannical father. But it's not true. Or it's half true. It's less than half true because there are other archetypes that have to be considered. No, there's no gratitude in the radical left because the radical left says the patriarchy is to blame for everything. It's like, well, you know, how about flush toilets? How about central heating? How about clean water? How about reliable electricity? That's all part of the tyranny, is it? They just take all that for granted. It's not a good idea to take all that for granted. 
And then you can also say we're seeing that too with the radical right. It's kind of the re- the the rebirth of the focusing on the the father but ignoring the tyrant. Right. So yeah, ideology. You know, you could say the radical left says the great father's all bad and the radical right says the great father's all good. Because they can't tolerate the conflict, the fact that both elements have to be considered simultaneously. And they're both equally desirous of abandoning individual responsibility, which is the under, you know, that's the real underground motivation for the polarization. Escape from individual responsibility. Escape from freedom. Wasn't that Eric Fromm? That's Eric Fromm, yeah. Yeah. So what, I think what you're arguing then is that instead of, that the, the response to these ideologies is embracing these meta narratives or looking at them again because they they set the pattern for us on how to live. But so here's the question, like how do you make that case to a post-secular world? Because like a lot of people just say, look at these stories like, you know, Tiamat and Marduk or the, you know, the Christ story and the Bible stories and say, well, that's just, you know, those are nice stories, but I'm not going to take it seriously. How do you, what's the case you make? Say, no, actually. Well, what are you going to take seriously then? You're going to take nothing seriously. Well, good luck with that because serious things are coming your way. And so if you're not prepared for them by an equal metaphysical seriousness, they will flatten you. So you can you can be dismissive with regards to wisdom, but that doesn't protect you from the coming catastrophe. And the way I deal with it on a one-to-one basis generally is to get people to talk about their lives. People know perfectly well that they need meaning in their lives. And let's say the atheist skeptical types who I have a fair bit of um, like respect for, I understand where they're coming from, they, they can't formulate a straightforward identification with, say, a religious creed because they, it conflicts with their rationality. It's partly because the, the more fundamentalist types on the religious end insist in their metaphysical ignorance that biblical stories are scientific theories, which they're not. I would say, look, if your life is working out for you and it's richly meaningful and you're well-oriented and all of that, well, then good for you. But if you're floundering and uncertain and unable to tolerate the suffering that's part and parcel of your being, then you may need to do some serious thinking about your metaphysical presuppositions. And life is a serious business in my estimation. So you have to be serious about what, how you think and what you think and how you act. There's just no way around it. Right. Because if you ignore it, what you're going to get are ideologies and that's just going to destroy you. Yeah. Well, or nihilism. Or nihilism, right. And, you know, as soon as the problem with nihilism is, well, if everything's cakes and roses, well, maybe you can tolerate it, but it's not going to see you through your father's descent into Alzheimer's disease. I can tell you that. You have to be metaphysically situated because life is a tragedy. And, and there's elements of malevolence to it as well, which is also something that's well worth pointing out. You know, people may be cynical enough to say, well, good is relative. And so I, I'm not required to pursue any specific direction because all are as good as any. It's like, well, you wait till someone comes along who has the increase of your suffering firmly in mind. You'll be naked in front of them because metaphysical naivety provides you with zero protection against malevolence. Like it opens you up to tragedy. That's bad enough. But malevolence is a whole different thing. And perhaps you'll be fortunate and get through your life without feeling the dread touch of the truly malevolent. But it's highly unlikely. And unless you're prepared metaphysically, when that touch comes, it will, f- it will destroy you. It'll t- take you apart. It's one thing not to believe in good. It's a lot more difficult not to believe in evil, especially when it makes itself manifest in front of you. And, I mean, I guess that going back to your clinical work, I mean, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the problems you see with your patients isn't so much mental illness, you know, though some of them have it, but it's just they don't have that metaphysical or existential bearing. So they just go through life feeling, I don't know, just an enemy or I don't know what people in the 19th century call it neurasthenia or something. I don't know. Well, they've been hit usually, you know, that something terrible has happened to them in their life. They've lost their job or their career or they're part of their family or they've had a terrible divorce or they've been visited by illness or they've had a confrontation with someone who truly wished them harm. So they've had a confrontation with malevolence and, you know, and that will exacerbate any proclivities they might have to a given physical or mental illness. But often the problems are purely existential. It's like they're, they're swamped by the reality of their existence. And a lot of the clinical endeavor is the search for 
metaphysical foundations that are firm enough so that in chaotic and in chaotic times when malevolence threatens, you can still stay oriented and upright. A lot of that has to do with strengthening your own character. And you do that by confronting the challenges that are there, by establishing your aims, by confronting the challenges that present themselves, and by attempting to carefully and and accurately and truthfully articulate your being. You mentioned in several of your interviews and in your YouTube channel that about 80 to 90% of your audience, audience is male, which I thought was interesting. It's more than that on YouTube, okay. yeah. Because it's interesting because psychology... I don't know. I mean, maybe that's not even what you're doing. Maybe that's why it is. Because like psychology typically attracts more women than men. Yes. So what do you think is going on there? Why do you think men are keyed in to what you're doing, exploring these archetypes and these meta narratives? Because I'm distinguishing between arbitrary power and competence, and because I'm talking to people about responsibility instead of rights. Like when men mature and become men, when young men mature and become men, it isn't power that they that accrues to them. It's competence. And the problem with the narrative that grips our culture at the moment is that we fail to make a distinction between power and competence. Power is just that I can hurt you and therefore I dominate. Competence is that I have status because I'm offering to myself and to other people something that they voluntarily regard as with value, of value. And my invitation to young men is to become competent, to forego power. Power is the tactic used by the incompetent to gain status. Competence is the tool used by the morally oriented to accrue authority and do good things in the world. Well, that's a noble call. And the only way out of the tragedy of existence is to follow the noble call. And young men, they need to hear that because the alternative is something like hell. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, we already, we already went through the 20th century. We know where the ideologies end, lead. We know where nihilism goes. And people say, well, I don't know how to stop being nihilistic. Well, that's what I'm trying to help people understand. And, and nihilism is terrible. It's a disease of the soul. And all it does is call forth compensatory ideologies. You know, you might say better to be nihilistic than to be possessed by an ideology, but it's just, it's one feeds the other. There has to be something, there has to be another way. And there is. The other way is to identify with the mythological hero to take up arms against the adversary who wishes that everything would would merely cease and perhaps in the most horrible way possible to struggle against the tyranny of the state to to put protective walls up against the catastrophe of the natural world and to walk the proper line between chaos and order and that's where studying those myths can come in handy because they set the pattern for it that's what that's the that's the world they lay out and everyone knows it. We know it because we go watch stories. We watch movies. We read novels. We play video games. They're all based, they all have the same underlying phenomenological world at their heart. Well, I'm curious, um, for those who are interested, they're like, this sounds great. I want to pursue this more. Are there particular works that you recommend? Like, Do you have like a reading list I can send people to? Because I think a lot if of- If they go to jordanbpeterson.com, there's a reading list there. That's fantastic. Yeah, one of the, th the things I've done in my own life is- um, after listening to your lectures, you use St. George and the Dragon uh, quite a bit, refer yep. to it. So I bought a picture book for my son. We've been reading that. It's become his favorite book. Oh, he loves good. It. He absolutely loves it. Yeah. And the other one, Front the Dragon, get the gold and the girl. <laughs> right. Um, and the other one he likes a lot is the Odyssey, which I think there's a ton of myths and meta narratives in there on how to live with chaos. So he loves that one. Great. Too. How old is your son? He's, uh, he's six. He'll be seven in October. Yeah, well, it's great. You've got a chance there to, to help him, to encourage him, which is what a father should do, right? Right. To encourage, not to empower, that pathological word. To encourage, to say, the world is a terrible place, but you are enough to master it. Yeah. That's what every young man needs to know. And that's what a lot of men who probably never heard that as a young man need to know, too. Yeah, they're dying for it. And they're turning to terrible things as a substitute. They're turning to ideology. Yeah. Well, that's what beckons as a substitute. Or the, the sad one is opioids, right? I think there's, there's, that there's sort of an archetype going on there, right? I just want to cease existing. Yeah, well, that's the comforts of unconsciousness. Right. Alcohol does the same thing. You can't do that. Well, Jordan, this has been a, a great conversation. Um, there's so much more we could talk about, but where can people go to learn? You mentioned Jordan B. Peterson. Anywhere else people can learn more about what you're doing? My YouTube channel. 
You know, I have my, I just finished a 12-part series on the psychological significance of the biblical stories. I only got about two-thirds of the way through Genesis, but I think people might find that useful. I have hundreds of lectures online. You can dive in anywhere, really, if you're interested in this sort of thing. I see it as the alternative. I laid it out originally when I started working on these ideas as the alternative to ideological possession. And that's become even more crucial in recent years as the ideologies raise their ugly heads again, yet again. Well, Jordan, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. My guest today was Jordan B. Peterson. He's a clinical psychologist at the University of Toronto. You can find all his work at jordanbpeterson.com. He has links to his YouTube lectures, his lectures that he gave on the biblical myths. You can find information about his podcast there and uh, also his self-authoring program. It's pretty cool. You should check it out. Also check out our show notes at aom.is peterson, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, have gotten something out of it while you've been listening, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. And thank you to everyone who has given us a review already. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brands Park American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.